Well, welcome back to our study of the book of Revelation. Uh, we are picking up after a week being off, so sorry for the breaks in our schedule, but it's a busy season at the church, and of course, hope you all had a really great Easter week last week. A lot going on, and a lot going on around the world, which is great. It, one thing, in, a, in a, such a secular world in which we live, which, I mean, that's always been the case, so nothing to complain about, that's just the way it is, but it's interesting that during Easter week, everybody's talking about that. Even the people that don't believe in God are talking about it during Easter week, because that's a good thing. Well, this evening, uh, we're gonna dive into a really interesting little piece of Revelation, but let me say a prayer for us, and then we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for bringing us together. We're grateful we have the freedom at this time to come together and study your word. I pray that it would enlighten our minds, that it would more deeply plant your love in our hearts, and I pray that it would motivate us to share your word with others. Father, I'm grateful for our nation. I do pray for our leaders, that you would turn their hearts to you, that we might be a beacon of light, a light set on a hill for the world. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as always, here's the number for questions. If you have questions uh, during class, it's also on the handout if you're online. And then we'll be back this week to recording a podcast with questions we don't get into and questions that need deeper answers. And so we record the podcast, put it out on Friday over at sowespeak.com. So you can find uh, more answers there. And if you want to send questions into So We Speak, we'll answer them there if you don't get them in during class. So this is the last time you will see this slide. Okay, I'm just telling you for, for old time's sake that you might wanna see it. You remember that we talked about the structure of Revelation, I'm just gonna write it on here, I think you know, is chapters one through three are letters from Jesus to the seven churches. So these are the words of Jesus. Chapters four through 19 are what are called the tribulation. Chapter 20 is the millennium. 21 to 22 is, I'm just gonna put heaven. So, I mean, that's rough, rough outline. But that's what it is, and we are in the tribulation. These four views only deal with the tribulation. And that is chapter four to 19. When we get into chapter 20, we get rid of those, but we still have to disagree about something, so I have three millennial views for you. So, we'll get to those later, but basically, and I don't want you to be afraid of this if you read in commentaries or you hear about it. These are all Christian views and they're trying to make sense of one question. When are the things in chapter four through 19 going to happen? So you have seven seals being opened and cataclysmic things happening. You have seven trumpets being blown and cataclysmic things happening. And then in our last lesson, there were seven bowls of catastrophes, plagues, but really seven judgments of God poured out on the earth. And the big question that people try to figure out is it's not so much what is gonna happen, they kinda know it's gonna be catastrophe, right? God's judgment on the world, but when is it gonna happen? So the preterists say, you know what? This happened uh, back about the time of uh, the cross. It happened in, around the time of the fall of Jerusalem, 70 AD. Historicists say no, this happened through the whole time period. And futures say no, it's gonna happen in the future. 
And then the symbolic view says, it actually is, is not trying to give you a timeline, it's trying to tell you things that happen over and over, recurring truths. So in our last lesson, we talked about, uh, these are the characters that we need to know about. In chapter 13, you see the Satan, and he is the red, the great red dragon. And I want you to think instead of dragon, serpent. Because in ancient times, when I say serpent, you think snake. When I say dragon, you know, you think mythical creature from, you know, Lord of the Rings or something, right? Yeah, whatever. But basically, in ancient times, those were the same creature. So you've got the serpent in the garden. Now you have the dragon. That's Satan. And then he has a beast from the sea. So this is a picture of the beast that comes from the sea in chapter 13. I told you that that is a, an entity, a country, a ruler, some kind of political and military power that comes out of the world system, a political power, and that's called the Antichrist. Okay, so the Antichrist. There's also a beast from the land. The land represents spiritual things, and he is the false prophet. Remember, he looked like, he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like Satan. So he's a false prophet. So you have the Antichrist, and then you have the false prophet. And so you notice that Satan has made himself a little trinity. You have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Now you have Satan, the Antichrist, the opposite of Christ, and the false prophet. And so he's made himself a little trinity and he is engaged in persecuting God's people. He wants to enslave the world, rule the world. He wants to be God. And he is particularly trying to stamp out God's people. So that is the story of what's happening in the tribulation. Is Satan and his little unholy trinity are trying to persecute the Christians and dominate the world politically and militarily and unite the world. Well, the last thing we saw was in chapter 15 and 16, you see the, the third set of seven judgments. So you get seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. So you get the complete judgment of God. And so these bowls have been poured out, and so I just wanna use this chart to show you kind of how people see that happening. So with the symbolic view, you basically say that chapters four through 19 are happening over and over. Hitler's probably an antichrist figure, someone who has a power trying to kill God's people. So was Attila the Hun. So were many of the Roman emperors. In other words, they're not saying it's untrue. They're just saying, oh, it's, it's really true. It's true over and over and over. Okay, so that's a symbolic view. A historicist view says, no, it's actually all the way from the cross to the second coming of Christ, this is a little secret roadmap. And so as you go through each seal and each trumpet and each bowl, it's moving through history. And we've talked about what some of those connections were. Futurists, different chart for futurists. Futurists think that chapters four through 19 are all right here in a seven year period. So they don't span from the cross of Christ until the second coming. They span only a seven-year period. 
And so chapter 16, so the bowls, that's a bowl, they're in the second half of the tribulation and some things happen in the first three and a half years, some happen in the second three and a half years. And so the Antichrist shows up in this seven year period. So just to go back for a second, all of these views are going to converge right here in chapter 19. And what happens in chapter 19? You have the battle of Armageddon and the second coming of Christ. And whether you're preterist, historicist, futurist, or symbolic, you go, Jesus Christ is coming again. It's literally gonna happen at some point. And so all those views converge and they all say, yeah, we all agree with the second coming of Christ and it's gonna happen. That converges in chapter 19. Today though, I want to be in chapters, so you've got chapter 16 is where you see the bowls. You've got chapter 19 where we have Armageddon and the second coming of Christ and in between, the book of Revelation wants to say, hold that thought. Okay, so we've got seven bowls of wrath, the final judgments of God. Antichrist is so upset. He's gathering all these kings of the earth and in chapter 19, he's gonna say, God, let's just do this right now. We're gonna have the battle of Armageddon and Christ is gonna come again. But in between, it's sort of like time out for a commercial break. We wanna talk about something else in chapter 17 and 18. It turns out to be very important. It is the story of a very strange images in set chapter 17 and 18. So the bowls are done, Armageddon's going to happen. You've got all the characters, you've got the Antichrist, you've got the, uh, the dragon, you've got the false prophet. But it says for just a second, you see this image of the great prostitute, Babylon the Great, riding on the beast. And so as we jump into this, I want you to know that there is a flow going on here, but we're taking a little pause in the flow. And we're gonna talk about these images and what is it trying to tell us? And why is it trying to tell us that right before the Battle of Armageddon? So let's dive in and ask questions if I'm not clear, but let's uh, look at what happens in 17. Okay, so the bowls are done. Then one of the angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come and I'm gonna show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit, meaning this is a vision, into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now we're gonna describe this beast. The beast had a lot of blasphemous names written on him. He had seven heads, he had 10 horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, meaning, this isn't literal, you need to figure out what this means. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of all of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the Christians, saints. Christians are saints. The blood of the martyrs of Jesus, the witnesses to Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. So let's start decoding a little bit of this and the Bible's gonna explain some of it. But the first level of decoding is this. 
Let me start with this beast. You may not remember this, but if you go back to chapter 13 and you see the beast that came from the sea, the Antichrist, this is the Antichrist. Exact same description. In other words, got the seven heads, got the 10 horns, uh, got the blasphemous names. And so this is the Antichrist. But sitting on the back of the Antichrist is this uh, prostitute and the whole, all this talk of committing sexual immorality with the kingdoms and the people of the world. So let's pause for a minute because from the very beginning of the Bible, all the way, Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, the idea of sexual immorality means two things. One, quite literally, sexual immorality. But also it's used as a euphemism, a metaphor for infidelity toward God, faithlessness to God. So for example, sexual immorality can very often mean that we have turned from our God and we've started worshiping another idol. Like we worship money or power or fame. And the Bible says that's like you're committing adultery to God or sexual immorality. So when you see it, it can be very literal or it can be faithlessness. And frankly, those two typically go together. And so it can mean both. So what is this woman then? This woman is someone who has enticed the people of the earth to move away from God and enter into some kind of relationship with things that aren't God, like the Antichrist. In other words, people go and begin to worship the Antichrist and his great power in the world. And so this woman and the Antichrist are linked together and she represents some kind of an entity, whether it's a world power or a religious power that is in league with the Antichrist. But the purpose of this, of this woman is to pull people away from what's true and what's good and from God and to say, no, instead you should worship and value the things of the Antichrist. Does that make sense? Anywhere in the Bible you see sexual immorality. It's either literally sexual immorality or often also faithlessness to God. So I wanna tell you uh, how the historicists see this woman. John Wesley, uh, John Calvin, Zwingli, all those guys in the 1500s, 1600s, Wesley's a little later, but they're all reformers. And they were protesting, they're Protestants, protesting against the Catholic Church. And I've told you that most of them were historicists. So what do historicists do? They read chapters four through 19 and they say, these are people in history. Well, John Wesley lived in the time of the reformers. He's in the 1700s. And so what does he think this woman on the beast is? Well, he thinks the Antichrist, the beast, is the papacy. Because at that time, the papacy controlled a number of things in the Middle Ages. I mean, they told kings whether they could rule or not. They basically would excommunicate people. They exercised a lot of political power. And those Renaissance popes, the popes at this era, let's just say it was not the finest moment for the Catholic Church, right? So they were abusing that power. And so the reformers, when they read the book of Revelation, they said, that's the Antichrist. They say they're Christian, but they don't act like it at all. And so 
the papacy, the series of popes were that. So what does he think? He says, Benedict XIII, the Pope, in his proclamation of the Jubilee in 1725, explains this sufficiently. He's gonna quote what the Pope said. The Pope said, this Catholic and apostolical Roman church, meaning the Roman Catholic church, is the head of the world, the mother of all believers, the faithful interpreter of God, and mistress of all the churches. He says, so Pope Benedict believes that he is the ruler of the world, the spiritual ruler and the political ruler of the world. And so he says, that's the Antichrist, because not telling the truth. Obviously, they didn't think the Catholic Church was preaching the truth. And so he looks at that woman and he says, that's the Roman Catholic Church infrastructure itself. And so the historicists see the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church, very much as the bad players in the book of Revelation. Okay? So that's an interesting quote from John Wesley, and you can see his point of view. But now I want, to, I want to step back for all the other views. It's kind of important to know uh, about two great cities in history. The first one is Babylon. Why is she called Babylon the Great? She's obviously not a city. And he says, you need to understand this mystery. Like, okay, she's obviously not a city, but why is her name Babylon? And I'm gonna just tell you in a few minutes, you're also gonna see Rome enter this picture. So let's talk about why does Babylon and why do Rome enter into Revelation and what do they mean when you see them? So let's go back in history. This is 586 BC. So this is a long time in history. Babylonian Empire and the capital of the Babylonian Empire was Babylon, which by the way is right next door to modern day Baghdad. Baghdad is built like right by the ruins of Babylon, okay? So you kind of have an idea where this is. So Babylon's capital city, Babylonian empire. What did the Babylonians do to God's people at the time? God's people at the time were Jews. I mean, we're 586 years before Jesus. So what is the essence of Babylon? The Babylonian empire conquered God's people, conquered the Jews, exiled God's people, meaning put them into slavery and, and exiled them, but they were slaves, destroyed the temple of God and profaned it and literally, I mean literally stone by stone destroyed the temple of God. So Babylon is not just opposed, I mean they're not just trying to take over the world, which they are, but they want not just to destroy conquer God's people, they want to turn them into slaves. They don't want to just conquer Jerusalem, they want to tear down the temple of their God. Babylon is a sign not just of wanting to conquer God's people, but I actually want to destroy God himself. I want to destroy his temple. The Babylonians said, we're the gods here, and they destroyed the gods of the other people. So Babylon as a symbol Babylon as an image means whoever's got Babylon written on them is someone who is opposed to God's people, who's opposed to God himself, and wants to destroy and enslave God's people. Fair enough? Fast forward to Rome. This is the Roman Empire. Of course, Roman Empire lasted for about, about a thousand years. But for our story, what the Roman Empire did is in 70 AD, 
Now remember, Jesus has been raised. Pontius Pilate crucifies Jesus. Let's call it 33 AD. And then Jesus is raised from the dead. Well, not very long afterwards, the Jews rebel and the Romans come in. And what do the Romans do? They conquer God's people. They deport a bunch of them and make them slaves. And they literally destroy the temple. If you go to Jerusalem today, what you see there, I mean, they didn't build the mosques, but I mean, you don't see a temple up there anymore. And you know when it was destroyed? 70 AD. Hasn't been a temple on that temple mount since 70 AD. So Rome also, what does it mean when you hear Rome? Conquering God's people, enslaving God's people, and destroying the temple of God. Rome is a power that wants to be worshiped just like Babylon did. So these images, and I wanna decode this a little because now it's not so difficult. When you see written on her head, Babylon, the mother of prostitutes, what does that mean? Well, she's opposed to God, and in fact, she wants you to, quote, prostitute yourself, quote, commit sexual immorality, meaning turn from God and come worship the Antichrist. And so calling her Babylon is like, oh, well, I know what kind of person this is or what kind of entity this is. It's like Babylon or it's like Rome. So does that make sense? So these, these images have pretty, pretty clear meanings and all those meanings are rooted in history. So it's not something you make up. Babylon and Rome, this is what they're known for. So when you see Rome come into this picture of Babylon, you go, I know exactly what you're talking about. This is not gonna be one of the good guys. Questions? Yes. Um is there a meaning or um, symbolism to the fact that the beast the woman is seated on does not have any diadems? Uh, well, that's a good question. There's no significance that most commentators place on that because the beast in 13 does, and diadems, by the way, as opposed to crowns, the two Greek words, diadems are like kingly crowns, political power. Uh, crowns, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you the difference when we see it, are more victor's crowns. So a diadem is political power. That's a great question. Most commentators, I, a matter of fact, I haven't seen a commentator that uh, considers that to be significant. So for what it's worth, uh, of all the ones I've read, no one seems to take issue with that. Okay, so we've got the woman, and she's some kind of an entity that is gonna take people and get them to worship the beast the Antichrist. And so the Antichrist is in league with, with her, whatever she may be. The historicists, John Wesley, think that's the Roman Catholic Church. But not everyone thinks that. So let's go back and continue on. The other thing I wanna point out, this is the same passage that we've looked at before. And so you've got the woman, you've got the Antichrist, but one thing I want you to think about is what is this woman doing? This woman uh, is the one who has persecuted the saints. She has an enemy, that is the people of God. And this woman uh, have committed sexual immorality with her and have become drunk. What does that mean? It means they are all in, lost their minds. They are committed to this woman. This is a little bit subtle, but I, I just wanna point this out in passing. So Satan wants to be God. And he's got a trinity. He's got an opposite of Christ, an antichrist who's gonna rule. And he's got a false prophet 
who's going to go preach. This woman represents his church. What does God have? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the body of believers, right? Which we call the church, those who are faithful to God. This woman, in some sense, represents his church. In other words, he, these, she's out there getting everybody to worship him, and he goes, ah, my church, my people, all the people on the earth that, quote, worship the Antichrist. Do you see the parallels there? This is Satan's MO. He wants to be God, he wants to be like God, so he has a trinity, and now he has a church. One more thought, because this is going to make a ton of sense next week. But one more thought. So let's just go to the New Testament. The church is often referred to over and over, and will be in, by the way, in the book of Revelation next, in our next lesson, as the bride of Christ. Meaning, Christ is, the, yeah, I mean, so many images. You're, I know you're probably just making connections if you've read the New Testament that, yes, the church is, you know, Christ loved his bride enough to die for her, to make her holy and pure. We will be united with him, not in any literal sense, but because of the intimacy. We will be so intimate. We will know God as he is, and he will know us as we are. And we stand before him, thanks to the blood of Christ, as pure. And so this idea of the church is, uh, is the bride of Christ. What do you have here? You got Antichrist, prostitute riding on his back, and who is this prostitute? This, these are his worshipers. Do you, you see the interesting parallels, but it's sort of like a negative. It's like you see the photo and it looks really good and you see the negative and all the colors are reversed. That's Satan. That's what's happening here. This woman, one way or another, represents his church, but instead of a bride dressed in white for whom Christ has died, this is a prostitute who commits sexual immorality. And so it's really interesting. This is just kind of a freebie. Okay, but that's, that has no great significance anywhere else. But I just want you to know that Satan is trying to be God and imitate God. And that's, that's a good way to think about who this woman is. Okay, so Bruce Metzger, he is symbolic view. So listen to what he says about this scene of the woman and uh, the Antichrist. The message of the book of Revelation concerns the character and timeliness of God's judgment, not only of people, but also of nations, that's true, of principalities and powers, authorities, corporations, institutions, structures, bureaucracies, and all the like. And to the extent that ecclesiastical denominations and sects have succumbed to the lure of power and prestige, the words of John are applicable also to present-day church structures. So interpret what he says. As a symbolic point of view, he says, look, I'm not telling you that's just the Catholic Church, like John Wesley said. I'm just telling you any religious entity that is turning and leading people away from God is the prostitute. And that could have been people in the past. It could be church organizations now to the extent that they haven't stayed faithful to God. They are, this is what this is talking about is any entity, any religious entity that leads people away. And any bureaucracy, the Antichrist is any bureaucracy, any government, any corporation that opposes God and oppresses God's people. Remember Babylon and Rome, what do they do? Oppose God, conquer and oppress his people then they are antichrist. So that's kind of, I wanted to give you a flavor of what do symbolic people think about. 
uh, the, that view? What do they think about the woman and the Antichrist? They think the same thing. They just don't think it's just the, the Roman Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. They think anybody who looks like Babylon or looks like Rome. Make sense? Give you a feel for what the symbolic view is. Beale says this, here in a uh, paragraph is the difference between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. What ultimately divides the two is the willingness or the lack thereof to recognize who God is and give him honor and worship that he alone is due. Particularly in the West, we live in a profoundly anthropocentric culture, meaning me-centered culture, self-centric culture, which utterly fails to place God and his glory at the center. And if we do not resist this, we will find ourselves slipping too easily into the hole of, hole of the kingdom of darkness. Also a symbolic view. And what he's saying is, is that we, this is relevant to us today. Why am I telling you the historicist and symbolic? Because the futurists don't think this has happened yet. And so we'll get to them. But the symbolic people say, man, this could be happening to us today. Anybody who, who, is, who is acting in that way is a, a Babylon, is a great prostitute, and is the Antichrist. So symbolic sees this as very, very relevant to today. Historicists see this as relevant to the past. Futurists see it as relevant to the future, okay? But the angel said to me, remember how he ended, he said, and I was amazed at what I saw. And he says, why are you amazed? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and 10 horns that carries her. This is futurist dessert. This is what futurists love, okay? So you futurists out there, we're getting ready to decode what all that stuff means. Okay, so the beast that you saw was, is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. Oh, this is too good. I mean, this is the Antichrist. What does Christ do? He's killed, he raised from the dead. The beast uh, from the sea, the Antichrist is described as having a wound that looked like it killed him. Oh, but no, he's alive, as though he came back to life. You remember that in chapter 13? That's what this is saying. He's faking a resurrection, because the Antichrist just wants to be like Christ. And so he's gonna go, look at me, I raised from the dead. Jesus isn't the only one that can do that, you need to worship me. That's what this is talking about. He's gonna, he's going to try to be like Christ. So he, who was, is not and is about to rise. He's not gonna rise to heaven. He's gonna rise from the abyss where all the demons are chained up. And he's gonna go to destruction. Spoiler alert, he's gonna lose. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. In other words, people on the earth who do not follow Christ, who are not committed to God, are going to marvel when they see the Antichrist. I'm just going to say Antichrist instead of beast. Because it was, and it is not, and it is to come, meaning, oh my goodness, he came back from the dead. We need to, we don't just need to follow this Antichrist, we kind of need to worship the Antichrist. It says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. In other words, you need to interpret the symbols. That's what Revelation means when it says this. The seven heads of the Antichrist are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. So if you are a futurist, you say that is Rome. The Antichrist in some sense is Rome, why? Because Rome has been known since before the time of Christ as the city that's set on seven hills. 
So this is, now I'm into the futures camp, right? Like, okay, when the Antichrist comes, the fact that Antichrist is described as having the seven heads, and the scripture says that seven mountains, this isn't the only way to understand this, but if you're a futurist, like, what more do you need? That's Rome. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because you've got Babylon, you've got Rome, and in a sense, they're kind of the same. They're both images for oppressing God's people, enslaving God's people, and being opposed to God, right? So Rome jumps into the picture here. You go, ah, the Antichrist has something to do with Rome. They're also, set, and, and so he says, by the way, this means two different things. They're also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one currently is, and the other has not yet come. Well, that's actually pretty easy. So think about the time of John. He says those seven heads are seven hills. Ah, Rome. And there are also seven kings or kingdoms. Five of them have already been five great kingdoms. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. This is from Daniel's prophecy. I'm just not going to go back there and grab that. But, you know, Daniel prophesies the kingdoms that are going to come. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, uh, Persia, and Greece. One that is Rome, the Roman Empire, right, while John is writing this, and one that is yet to come. And if you're a futurist, ah, the Antichrist's kingdom all the way over here in the tribulation in the future. That makes sense? That's how a futurist will understand this. I mean, I'm not telling you there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying this is how you would make sense of that. Five of those kingdoms already have been. Rome is now. And then skip a long period of time. When the tribulation comes, the Antichrist kingdom will be the seventh great kingdom. Seven, oh my goodness, isn't that a symbolic number? And so the point is, it's going to be the last one. It's going to be the totality and the greatest kingdom opposed to God. It's going to be the ultimate Babylon, the ultimate Rome, and God's going to destroy it. But you see where it's the seventh kingdom yet to come. And it's going to happen in a seven-year period in the tribulation in the future. So this is, like I said, this is like dessert, you know, for futurists. And when he comes, he must remain only for a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh. I just don't want to go into this today, but commentators have a blast with this. But it's very cryptic and no one actually knows. And it goes to destruction. Now the ten horns, so now we had the seven heads, and they were hills, and they were kingdoms. The ten horns are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the Antichrist. So the way futurists understand this, one hour is, is not symbolic of anything other than a short period of time. I mean, it's not like one means anything in scripture, but I mean, one hour, okay, short period of time. So for some short period of time, these 10 kings are gonna be brought together by the Antichrist into a world power coalition. And commentators will talk to them. They'll name the 10 kings, you know, Xi Jinping in China and Vladimir Putin in Russia. And, you know, just start naming off, you know, the, the Ayatollah in Iran and this whole big world group that the Antichrist is going to put together. 
and he's gonna dominate the world and these are gonna be the 10 kings and they're the ones that are going to challenge God. Finally, he's got his church, right, the prostitute. He's got his little unholy trinity and now he's got all of his kings and the powers of the earth and he's ready to challenge God, which is what we'll talk about next week when Armageddon comes. This is the buildup to Armageddon, right? So that's what's happening here. And this pretty much interprets it. So you've got, as I walk through this, texting questions if it's not clear, but I really want this to not be such a big mystery. There are little things in here that you, you could really quibble about, but this is pretty straightforward. So if you're a historicist, this is the Roman Catholic Church. By the way, if you're a historicist and you don't know what something means, just assume it's the Catholic Church. And then if you're symbolic, it's like, oh my goodness, this is evil. This is opposed to God. And you could sit here and think, I can think of a number of things in history. Well, that's the way symbolic think. It's been true once, it's been true twice, it's been true many times. Futurists are looking for a real coalition somehow based in Rome, uh, in, it's gonna have something to do with Rome or the Roman Empire, maybe a reconstituted Roman Empire. Uh, you know, futurist interpreters have a lot of speculation about that and that it's going to be a coalition of 10 great nations, 10 great kings, and they're gonna rule the world and they're gonna be very hostile to God's people. So hopefully that kind of decodes that a little bit. And then the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated, you may not remember this, says she's seated on the waters and she's seated on the beast. And imagery of Revelation, inconsistency is no problem at all. All right, she's seated on the waters and she's seated on the beast. And he says, I'm gonna explain the waters to you too. The waters that you saw where the prostitutes are seated are, count these, peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. What did we say the number four was? Four, these? Earth, the whole totality of the earth. Four is an earthly number of the created order. So in other words, the prostitute is seated on the water, the, the church of Satan and the worshipers of, I mean, of the Antichrist are all the rest of the world, except for the ones whose names are written in the book of life. And you get the idea that there's not as many Christians as there are non-Christians here. He says, and the 10 horns that you saw, they and the Antichrist. Now here's the interesting twist on this. Will hate the prostitute. So I just can't help pointing this out. So Jesus loves his bride, the church, so much that he will die for her. Satan gets a divorce in less than seven years, okay? He's going to turn on the very institute. And then futurists are going, oh my gosh, this is gonna be a political thing that happens here. He's gonna break a treaty or he's gonna turn on some organization. You know, some would say that the woman is the UN and trying to say, oh, we need to all follow the Antichrist and the Antichrist is gonna get tired of the UN and disband it. Or, I mean, any number of interpretations, but here's how Revelation says it. It says they're gonna hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked. All that means is they're gonna destroy her, devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire. So this is not your friendly divorce, but basically this is Satan turning on his own church, if you will. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind, handing over their royal power to the Antichrist. So the Antichrist somehow through this becomes the new emperor. 
and is ruling all of the world until the words of God are fulfilled. In other words, what is that telling you? It says, God knows this is gonna happen. God is permitting this to happen for a purpose. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So you get this idea of Babylon. But the interesting idea here is that, at, that the Antichrist is so like Satan. There's no loyalty, he's a betrayer. He's a liar, he's a deceiver, just like Satan. That's what Satan means, the adversary, the accuser, the liar. Remember Jesus said of Satan is that he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. So you, you really get the pa picture painted here of, of this, and if you're symbolic, you really appreciate sev chapter 17 and 18 because it really describes how God sees all those kingdoms and powers allied against his people. If you're a futurist, you say, this is God telling us exactly what's gonna happen during this time period, and it's gonna be politics. There's gonna be, remember, a lot of futurists think there's gonna be nuclear war, and that's what those seven bowls really are that, that's ravaged in the earth, and out of all of that comes the Antichrist, and he's literally going to rule the world politically. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and earth was made bright with his glory and he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird and a place for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, meaning she has tempted all of the world to worship the Antichrist instead of God. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, meaning they have been unfaithful and followed her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And so you get some hints here, uh, two, two things here, one is that this system, this world power, this empire, whatever this may be, is really economically and politically motivated in the sense that the, the world has benefited economically from association with her and they benefited politically from association with her. Now, what happened to the, the believers? Well, they didn't get the mark of the beast, did they? They're economically persecuted. They can't buy and sell. They have a great deal of hardship. Do they have any political power? No, in fact, the Antichrist is killing Christians. And so you see this huge disparity and people are gonna have a choice to make, follow God and suffer financially and politically or worship the beast and prosper for a time. And that's the interesting lesson, fallen, Fallen is Babylon the great. When the Antichrist, I'm gonna speak like a futurist now. And so when the Antichrist falls, when you get to the end of all these cataclysms and he's got all the power in the world, when he falls, it will be very swift fall. I don't know if, uh, not all of you are old enough to remember this, but some of you are, the quote, fall of the Soviet Union. I just wanna make an analogy here because you remember, it, this had been going on for a long time, is America, the Cold War with the communist Soviet Union, and then you get the, you know, Reagan, you know, tear down this wall speech kind of a thing. But there were a lot of things going on, and the Soviet Union collapsed economically and militarily 
and it happened. It seemed like it happened just like that. I mean, literally you wake up one day and it's like, oh my goodness, the Soviet Union is no longer the Soviet Union. And all these, you know, the Crimea and Belarus and uh, Ukraine, they all split off to become their own things. It's like that kingdom fell, that empire fell overnight, it felt like. That's what this is gonna be like. It's gonna look to the world like he's all powerful. And just when you think he's all powerful, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. And the final uh, thing, alas, you great city, you mighty city, just talking about Babylon, but what is Babylon? The Antichrist kingdom. Babylon, for in a single hour, your judgment has come. Meaning no matter, and, and there's a great lesson for us out of this, no matter how powerful the forces of evil seem to be, no matter how invincible the forces of evil seem to be in our lives, in our world, how invincible they seem to be with Hitler and World War. I'm gonna speak like a symbolic person now to make this point. No matter how powerful Nazi Germany seemed to be at the time, no matter how powerful the Roman Empire seemed to be at the time, no matter how powerful, if you're living in North Korea today, uh, Kim Jong-un's you know, uh, empire seems to be, no, you know, if you happen to be living in Indonesia and Christians are being killed, no matter how powerful they seem to be, if symbolic point of view is gonna encompass all of Christians of all time, take, take heart from this because when they seem the most powerful, it will happen quickly. That when God chooses, he will destroy it. The real power is God, not the empire. And so there's a, there's a really powerful lesson here and encouragement to Christians in this. Questions? Okay. Is there a school of thought that says that the Roman Empire still exists in some form? Is there a school of thought that thinks that the Roman Empire still exists in some form? Kind of, in this sense. Uh, no, not as a political entity. Some futurists think that the Roman Empire will be reconstituted in the sense that it's kind of a worldwide empire, it's really powerful, it's opposed to God, and it persecutes God's people. I mean, that's why, that's what Rome means as a symbol, as an image, right? And that's why some people think that the Antichrist will rule from Rome, and that will be the headquarters. So there's a sense in a political sense, but I'm not aware of anybody who thinks that Rome is politically an entity. But if you think about Rome as the Roman Catholic Church, who does have their headquarters in Rome. Oh my goodness, the Pope. Here come the historicists again. So there are some people who think that the Roman Catholic Church is perhaps what is being referred to here, is that's gonna be part of the Antichrist empire. That the Antichrist is going to use religion and political power and put them together. That's a really common thought. And so in that sense, the quote, Roman Empire kind of still exists as the Roman Catholic Church, but not as a political entity. That's a great question. Okay, so you mentioned several countries that are represented, some symbolically, some by name, Babylon. Mm -hmm. Are there future countries or current countries that are mentioned? And then an another question, which is similar, which is the greatest country in the world, the U.S., is it mentioned symbolically? Uh, good question. So, well, 
I'll try to give you a good answer. So my first answer would be no, not in this way. Meaning Babylon was a real nation, real empire, really did destroy God's people, destroyed the temple, opposed to God. I know I'm repeating this over and over. I just want you to know this is what this means, right? Don't think city, think any entity that does this. And Rome was a real place that did that. There is not a reference like that to nations that are here today. But some futurist commentators look at some passages I haven't shown you before. Uh, back in the book of Daniel, and you talk about, you've got Gog and Magog, you've got uh, bears, uh, you've got things that where they're going to, they're going to take some of those prophecies and interpret it to be countries that are here today. So kind of a qualified, yeah, kinda, but not so clearly as this. The only other thing that is mentioned that some people assign a country today to, if you remember all the way back, this is many chapters back, we have the woman who's about to give birth, right? So this is Satan gonna destroy the, uh, that is going to destroy the Messiah. You know, it's literally talking about what happened in Jesus' time. And an eagle comes along and, and plays a part in this. People go, whose symbol is the eagle? The United States. And so, Realistically, nah, not so sure about that. But big picture, there, that, is an, that is an image that some people say the United States is going to be on the side of God's people and is going, and this is a very common futurist idea, is that the Antichrist is going to get his whole big consortium together and the way Armageddon is going to happen, it's not like he's just going to look up at the sky and say, God, I want to duke it out with you. He's going to turn around on Jerusalem and try to do what Babylon did and what Rome did. I'm gonna destroy Jerusalem. I'm gonna destroy, in, in other words, he's gonna become another. You know what, I'm gonna destroy your temple. I'm gonna destroy your people and that's my way of saying, hey, you're not God, look at me. I'm the one that's strong, I'm the God. And it's very common futurist thought in some circles that the United States will be on the side of Israel against the Antichrist, okay? largely because of that eagle reference. So not quite the same, but that's also a very subtle and a good question. So nothing like Babylon and Rome, but you can fit almost anybody in here. You can get the Pope in here, you can get anybody in here. Getting lots of questions about when you're gonna tell us which one of these beliefs you subscribe to and if you're really gonna do that or not. So the answer yeah. to that is yes, but not tonight, right? I, I really am gonna tell you, but here's the point. It's, I don't want you, I mean, obviously this is just the way we approach the Bible here. I want you to think about the Bible. I want you to read the Bible. I want you to have the tools to understand the Bible. And on the big issues, all of these views think the same thing. So, but I do want you to be familiar with different ways to look at it. So when you study, you can engage the word. The spirit will do good things in you. Just saying, oh, I think what Terry does. Okay, well, that's good. Um, maybe that's a good, but I don't know the spirit's gonna do anything in you with that. I want you to engage the scriptures. I'm fine with all four of these views. I don't happen to agree with them and I'll tell you which one I do at the end. But I do want you just to engage the scripture and understand how people have looked at this book. And so, is it possible to believe and see truth in all of the perspectives? And is it important that we land on a view? Yeah, that's a great question. Do you have to land on a view? The, the most important thing, in my view, 
of what we need to do out of the book of Revelation is hold to the essential truths that God is communicating to us. Uh, so the fact that uh, there are Babylons in the world, there are Romes in the world, evil does look very powerful, but God is actually in control. You notice everything that happens in this book is coming out of the throne room. Angels keep coming out. Where do you think they're coming from? God's the one directing this play, not Satan, right? And so that's a powerful story. And it's powerful for me to know that even when my life is hard, even when it seems like I am helpless, God is still in charge of this whole thing, not Satan. Satan will have his day, but he is going to be destroyed. And that is kind of the story of Revelation. So I do think it's important that you take those truths out of it because they are revealed to us for a purpose. And then to go beyond that and say, I want to figure out when that's going to happen. Remember, that's our difference in these four views is when is it going to happen and exactly who's it going to be. There's nothing wrong with speculation. Just hold those thoughts a little bit loosely. So I don't know that you have to pick that. I just, the key is get the truths that God is communicating to us out of it. Are the different views uh, compatible? They are not all compatible with one another. If you're a preterist and you think this happened in 70 AD, you pretty much think it happened in 70 AD. If you're a futurist and you think it's gonna happen in the future, you're pretty sure at this point you know, that Xi Jinping is not the Antichrist, right? Because we haven't gotten into the tribulation yet. So, I mean, those are kind of mutually exclusive. Again, they all still agree on those truths. That's why we're talking about them. If they didn't, we wouldn't be talking about them. But they do agree on the truths, but they have a real difference of opinion. But I'll tell you the one that probably fits best with so many things is the symbolic view by its very nature. And I'm not trying to sell you on it, but the idea is a symbolic view says, I think this is true. I just think it's true many times. Well, that is kind of compatible with some of the other views. So if you want to hedge your bets, you, can, you probably can do symbolic and futurist or something like that. That's a good question. But it's not as important that you, it's not as important that you identify yourself as well. I'm a pre-trib, pre-millennial futurist. You know, it's like, well, I hope you're Christian first, but yes, then I, then I know what flavor of Christian you are when you say that, right? That's fine, but let's hold that a little loosely and let's hold the truths. It's just like, you know what, it's just like the denominational thing. You know, back in the day, you know, before I was a Christian, I know that it used to be like, well, I'm a Baptist or I'm a Methodist. I'm not saying everybody did this, but you know what I'm saying is sometimes we kind of held on to that label uh, maybe a little too much. Maybe we held on to that label too hard. Well, I feel the same way about these labels. Well, let's not hold on to them that tightly. We can certainly have an opinion and we can certainly disagree, but these are disputable issues. Jesus coming again, God being sovereign, those are not disputable issues, but the, the answers to whether you're a preterist or a futurist or whatever, that's, a, that's an issue we can disagree about and still be friends. There are a few of the future, so you guys are a little cranky sometimes and don't want to be friends. Seriously, I, I do appreciate people that have the courage of their convictions. So in all seriousness, so what we've done in this lesson is uh, I hope you can see why this might be here. Because in our next lesson, we're going to go right into the Antichrist with his world control is going to challenge God himself. We call that the Battle of Armageddon, and we'll talk about that next week. But now you have a little better feel of who is Satan and the Antichrist and what are they doing and how evil they really are. 
And so you see that this is not just a battle of two armies. Ephesians 6 is true. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We certainly are oppressed by real flesh and blood, and we Christians really were killed by real flesh and blood. But our battle's not really against flesh and blood. Your problem isn't really your boss at work or uh, the cancer. I mean, in all seriousness, as serious as those things are, what Paul is saying is, look, that's not really what's going on here. What's really going on is our battle is against the forces of evil in the dark places of the world. It's Satan, Antichrist, false prophet, and the church and the persecution. But he already tells you that they're doomed and you win and you will triumph. And that's the beautiful truth of it. So chapter 17 and 18 kind of set us up. So next time we go to chapter 19, very end of the tribulation. Why is it the end of the tribulation? Because Jesus is gonna come back. We're through with that period and now we get the return of Jesus. So we're camo, gonna be a big battle next week. I'll see you then. <laughs>